Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4, found on page 1093. In your pew Bibles, we'll be singing, the singing, not singing, reading the, verse, the first 13 verses. This text is not one that connects directly to baptism in the sense that baptism is mentioned. And yet we can see that there is a direct connection in that what Christ undergoes here in his ministry is one of the many aspects and a rather important aspect that makes baptism possible. The righteousness that he achieves on our behalf as well as his defeat of the devil and what he would do in his ministry. Before we read these first 13 verses, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord Jesus, we come before you, before our Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to read of what you have done, what you have done on our behalf as our representative in a battle, in a, in a, um, a boxing match the likes of which we could never fulfill, in a fight that we would never be able to overcome, in temptations where we actually hear the echo of our defeat, of our past defeats through our past representatives, And yet we come now to you, you who are our Deliverer and our Savior. We pray that as we would read this text, we would not only be in awe of what you've done, we'd be able to see that you have accomplished our very salvation, that we'd be able to see the the power you have even over the devil, and that he is no obstacle to you. And so, because we are in you, he now truly is no obstacle to us. And through this, may we as well see how we are to battle our own temptations through you. We ask this in Jesus' name, in your name. Amen. Luke 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Ascends the reading of God's word. Before us today is a battle. We could use the the boxing terminology, a heavyweight battle, the likes of which had never occurred on this scale before, and yet the likes of which had occurred before where we could have some echoes, echoes of previous failures, 
echoes of those who represented mankind in Adam and his failure, echoes of, of Israel. Israel was called the Son of God as, as they were in the wilderness and tempted. We, we hear, it's unmistakable to hear these echoes, especially the echoes of the people of Israel in the wilderness and their trials. And in the one corner, representing the kingdom of darkness, Sin in this world is the chief, is the prince of the world, is the best that they have to offer, and it's the devil. And he comes out swinging. And in the other corner, in, in what we could label as, as man's corner, but it's, it's God's corner as well, this is not only God's champion, this is our champion, and, and what will he do? He is our representative, and this battle commences. This is a very significant text. Remember what had just happened. He had been baptized. He'd been declared the beloved Son of God. He'd been given the genealogy that showed who he was. And the Spirit who had descended, anointed him just moments before in his baptism, drives him out into the wilderness to do battle. It's a battle that he faces as a man, as a man who is hungry, as a man who we could say in that way is, is weak. And the text prior had ended with, this is Adam, the son of God. That, that shows his descent. He descended from him. And, and as we said last time, this, Luke is likely doing this to, to front this temptation with the last name of Adam, the son of God. And now Jesus goes to be tempted, likely to draw a connection between this first Adam and this second Adam, who now goes and is tempted by the devil. And what will happen? We, we can even think of the echoes of this prior boxing match, of this prior battle. What had happened? It was, it was our representative in a glorious garden who had everything before him, who had it all, who was well provided for and satisfied for, and the temptation was a shortcut. The temptation was to offer him through not fulfilling the mandate God had given him, but promising you will be like God. You will know good and evil. Just do this. And so the temptation then was to our representative, who was not one who had been weakened by hunger, who was not one in that distress, but who was offered a, a fine fruit, a fine shortcut, as the devil would put it. Do it this way. And, and we know what happened to our first parents. They fell. And then as the text very clearly connects to the people of Israel and all that they went to in the same setting of the wilderness. And so what we have here is a battle that's thousands of years in the making. And every other battle before that had been an utter failure. It had been knockout punches by the devil, but finally, finally, here he is, we just heard his genealogy. We just heard the profession of God himself. This is the one. And look how different this is. This, is, this text is just amazing. It gives us so much joy because here is our champion. Now, we have sports and we have things and we, we like to root for our teams and we so connect to, to them. Even as I said it, our team. We don't own them. We just like to root for them, but we, we call them our team. And, and, and we, we just root with all the vim and vigor that we have for these type of people, but, but far greater than that, far greater than that. This is our representative, and what he does has a direct bearing on us. His, his defeat is our defeat. His victory is our victory. And we watch this match unfold. And the devil comes to tempt. All three temptations challenge God's promise about Jesus' sonship. That was just revealed. His temptations seek to defeat the kingdom of God before it can gain a foothold. This is the battle that's going on. This is, this is D-Day. 
There will either be a foothold gained in that, in that theater of war or not. And if a foothold is gained, then the victory is assured, even though there will be battles to come. If the kingdom of God gains the foothold, it will be over for the devil. And here it is. The ministry begins in Christ. In Christ we have that foothold of the kingdom. In Christ we see the, the cracking of Satan's rule. And that's our theme this morning. Jesus' unswerving devotion, devotion cracks the rule of Satan, establishing the kingdom of God. Jesus' unswerving devotion cracks the rule of Satan, establishing the kingdom of God. This is far more than a man who is tempted about bread or a man who is offered kingdoms, or a man who is, who is tempted to doubt the Lord and his provision. This is the, the battle royale, the grand battle. And that would be one that would, part, would, would happen throughout Christ's ministry, but this is in a very formal, explicit way. This is that time of, of Jesus and the devil, and he's named, and they're battling each other. And what should happen? In the first temptation... We see Satan asks Jesus, in essence, to question the very care of God, to, to seek to provide for himself and bread. And the second temptation, we see him offer another shortcut, a shortcut to the kingdoms of the world. And we see in the third, a, a temptation to doubt the care of the Lord, to doubt God's word. Very common ways that the devil, the devil tempts and acts in the way he seeks to trip up. And the passage begins, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The number 40 is a significant number in God's word. It highlights, it highlights important events. But as well, it connects very unmistakably to the 40 years of the wilderness wandering of the people, to the, to the previous son of God, Israel. Out of Egypt I've called my son, is what the Lord had said. This is my son in Israel, and yet we see here who the true son is. The son who is in the wilderness, who's been, been starving for 40 days and now tempted with bread. And so the devil tempts a hungry man, a hungry man to use power. And we hear the echoes of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness here when they wanted food. When they were hungry and in, in response had said, it's better for us to go back to Egypt. It's better for us to seek slavery again. We had went through Exodus a while ago and we had seen what Egypt and Pharaoh represented. It was Satan and, and it was death itself. It was enslavement. And, and so what they had done was, you know, yes, devil, you're right. I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn from this, the Lord and his lack of provision and let us turn back. Let us turn back to the way we came. It was better for us then. That's the echo of the last defeat. And so Satan comes, he's practiced, he's done this before, he's knocked out God's champions before. But not this one. So he brings the temptation, but the temptation comes with a catch. And the catch is, he's, and he's telling Jesus to, to satisfy his own hunger, to fill his stomach. But again, it's much more than just hunger. You see, the catch there is it would take Jesus removing himself from a God-appointed trial. How many of us would not take that? Do this. Remove yourself from this God-appointed trial, this trial that, is, that you hate, that's bearing you down. Remove yourself. Use your power. You can do it. Make this piece of stone, make this rock bread, eat, fill yourself. 
But you see the catch there. You see the hook in the devil's bait. What, it, what does it take? It takes a violation of what the Lord had done. It was the Lord who sent him into the wilderness to be tempted. The Lord arranged him for this battle, very similar to, to Job. Remember what the Lord had said about Job to Satan? Do you, have you considered my servant Job, how blameless and upright he is? Well, here he had just declared, the Father declared, this is my beloved Son. And so we can interpret that and say, he's declaring to the devil, have you considered him, my servant, how blameless and upright he is? Take him into the, the wilderness. I will send him into this temptation. He will be without food for this long. He will be weak. And so what the devil is saying is, ignore the Father's plan. Take and eat. What does Jesus say? He quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8. And we'll see as we walk through this text that each of Jesus' quotations are far from just random. Sometimes you might think that. You might read it and be like, yeah, okay, he's, he's quoting there. But, but if you read the context of everything, his, his quotations and his use of God's word is just as accurate as it could be. It's pinpoint using a text that answers everything that the devil could say. And in Deuteronomy 8, we read from the text of Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 3, And God humbled you, this is Moses talking to the people of Israel, talking about their past failures. And God humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Jesus quotes a text when the people themselves were starving. And, and, and Moses' commentary on this, remember when you were hungry in the wilderness, when the Lord fed you with manna. And he says the purpose of that, the purpose of Israel's starvation at that time in the wilderness was to show that man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And what had happened to Israel at that time, they responded poorly, they fell, they grumbled, they complained, they wanted to go back to Israel, Egypt. But what does the Father do still, even at that time? He proves that it's not just by bread that you live. Manna comes, miraculous manna descends from heaven and the people are fed. He provides for them, but the whole point, the whole point was, will you fear me and not turn back to Satan, to Pharaoh? Will you fear me? And so Jesus quotes, This man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what is he saying? I have all I need. I will not forsake my calling. I prove through this that I fear the Lord. That was the point. That's what Jesus shows. Now, now how do we apply these temptations to us? Now, what we can't do is just moralize this text. What this text is not is for us here to take and say, here's God's systematic approach to deal with our temptations. That's not what this is. This is so far beyond us. This is so, so much grander than what we can just take. So we don't just don't moralize it and say, okay, we must use God's word to fight temptation. That is true. And you can glean this from this text. And that is a point this text is making. But what we don't do is approach this and say, in your battles against the devil, do this. Fight this way. This is meant for us to look up to our champion and not to think, this is something we can do. It's meant for us to see our champion defeat Satan. 
It's meant for us to apply even the temptations of Satan against us through this text. And what do I mean? I mean, we do not view our temptations as if it's just the devil coming to us anymore. We view our temptations, we view the the way in which the devil comes to us as him who's coming to us who has a champion in our corner already, who, who defends us already. It's Jesus who faces the devil and wins. It's he who stands on God's word. This is an account about Jesus who binds the strong man, the devil. That is what's going on. And so when we face this devil ourselves, the way we apply this text isn't just use God's word in defense. Okay, absolutely do that. But no, what this text is saying is that you are connected and in union with the one who defeated Satan and defeats him at every step of the way. You face temptations as the one with the kingdom of God in place. It's different than the way we would face it. When we face the temptation of sin and the devil, we do it as those equipped with the one who defeated him already. We face him as those equipped with the Spirit, just as Christ was. And we come from the place of gospel fulfillment and redemption. The temptation that Jesus faced is far greater than anything we could face by the very fact that he never failed which means he went to the end of every temptation. Often, our release valve for a temptation is failing. Often, we never even reach the end. In fact, knowing that no work we do is perfect, we could say we've never reached the end of a temptation. Even in the way we stand, it's it's infused with sin, but not Christ. He he bore the full brunt, but what you see here, let me use that boxing analogy, it's not as if the devil comes out of his corner and like Hollywood movies starts just beating him up and beating him to a pulp and then slowly the the hero of the movie grinds it out, guts it out, and with a bloody face is is able to respond back and eventually win. What we see here is, is using that boxing analogy, Jesus slipping the punches. And landing his own, this, is, this isn't to say it was an easy temptation. But what we see here is the totality of his victory. You see, the echoes of our past defeats, of the echoes of man's past defeats, are so erased by this one bout. It's such a total victory that the echoes of our prior defeats are drowned out in Christ's triumph. He's our champion by the grace of God. This is the battle of man versus the devil. Yes, the God-man, but you see what the devil isn't doing is the devil's not attacking and appealing to his divinity. He's coming at him through what should be or what he would think is the weakest point, his humanity. Will he fail here? Not this righteous one. And so the, the battle continues in the second temptation in the second temptation, verses 5 to 8, the devil offers a shortcut to the kingdom of God. He attempts to thwart Jesus' mission. He does, again, what, he, what echoes to Eden, shortcut the, the plan of God, go about it a different way, tamper with his word, tamper with what God had said, do it this way. And for Jesus, you see, if we could, could phrase it this way, how appealing this temptation is. You see, Jesus had come to, to what? To gain the kingdom of, of the world. He had come to set up the kingdom. So the devil's temptation, the devil's punch is well placed. Here, he takes him up and shows him all the world. I will give it to you. 
Now, again, this is much more than, than what would appeal to just our vanity and our, our greed. Oh, we would like to, to have all the worlds as ourselves. What this is, is really doing, it's a shortcut that Jesus could take and go around the suffering. You see, just as the other temptation had a catch, had a hook in the bait, so does this one, and it's the same one. It's one to forsake his calling. But he he's, knows what he's going to bear. Jesus is well aware of what he will face, and what we know what he will face. It's properly called eternal hell. That's what he bears. And so what the devil is offering him is, bow down and worship me, and you will es- escape the weight and pain of eternal hell that you have to bear. Again, it's a sweet temptation, isn't it? All it would take would be for him to forsake his calling. And yet Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy, here from Deuteronomy chapter 6. After conquering the land of Canaan, this is Moses' words to them after they would do it. They're, they're on the doorpost of the promised land, and Moses in Deuteronomy 6 is talking to the people, and he's telling them after you conquer this, this land... He says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. So what does Jesus do to this temptation of being offered all the kingdoms of the world and an escape to hell itself? He quotes from a text that had said, When you, people of Israel, go into the land, when you gain the kingdom. That's the context. That's how fitting Jesus' quotation is here. When you go and conquer all the kingdoms of the promised land, when you're doing that, only serve the Lord. Only him shall you fear. You can't serve anyone else. Only by the Lord shall you swear. Only by his name shall you worship. And what we know is if they were to to worship by any other name, the conquest would fail. If they are to adopt other gods, the curses of the covenant would come upon them. And so what does Jesus say? I will swallow eternal hell for the plan of the Lord. Him only will I serve. You see, the, the, what Jesus did here wasn't this, which is often true of us. It wasn't. I'll take the Lord's plan. He probably has something good in it for me, and I'm, and I'm guessing it won't be as bad as, as what it seems to be. Uh, the Lord's plan for Christ was every bit as bad as what it seemed to be. It was eternal hell that he would have to bear that. But he shows his trust. He shows his wisdom and understanding that it would be through bearing that that humanity would be restored and the kingdom of God would be set up. And yes, he would receive all the kingdoms of the earth. The devil is is doing all he can, throwing everything he's got at him, but look at how the Lord responds, his faithfulness, his unswerving devotion, cracking the devil's kingdom weakening it and showing who truly is the master here, and it is not you, the prince of this world. It's the beloved Son of God. Here he is. And though there was a shortcut to God's promise, Jesus elected not to take the false shortcut, but the full pill, the full full cup that the Lord offered and through it gained the world itself, gained our salvation. You know, that's how the devil works. 
You know, the devil does that to us. We, we face shortcuts. Don't stand up to your peers who live sinfully. There's other ways. Just, just let it go. Don't wait for the blessing of God when you can have it now. Don't wait for marriage for marital bliss. Take the shortcut. Don't make the hard decision to believe in, in what the Bible says on all these current issues, on, on definition of marriage or gender or race. Don't follow that. Don't create panic. Don't, don't cause pain. There's shortcuts. That's how the devil works. But Jesus' battle here was far more significant than that what we face the appeal and the temptation to Christ would have been avoidance of the eternal weight of hell, but Jesus shows we can worship and serve only one God, and Jesus shows it is always better to fear only the Lord. Now that is how we should apply it to our life. We can take that and apply it to our own temptations. It is always better to trust in the Lord. That is always the answer. The devil offers you something that smells and looks so sweet and always has a hook in it always has a barb that will impale you, that will poison you, that kills. And we see our champion here not fall for the bait, and neither do we, neither should we, through the strength we see in him. Then we see the third temptation, verses 9 to 13. The devil will now fight fire with fire. Jesus has been quoting scripture left and right. He's been defending it with God's word, well-placed citations of God's word. And so the devil decides to give one of his own, and he picks a good one for his purpose he cites from Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a psalm that extols and praises the Lord for his protection of his people. I'm going to read just a portion of it, as including what the devil quotes, so you, you can see what he's doing. Psalm 91, beginning in verse 9, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So the devil quotes this. Hey, he takes him. It's either bodily or many commentators would say this is probably something of like a vision. That Jesus was perhaps not bodily taken to the temple and placed on this precipice, but in some sort of vision-like way. Either way, this is the, what we have, whether he was there bodily or in vision way, he's taken to the temple. And why does the devil take him there? Likely it's to say, hey, if the Lord would be able to keep your foot from striking the stone, it should be on his doorstep, right? If the Lord is going to uphold his righteous one, shouldn't it be on the very house of the Lord where he dwells and is? Will he bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone? And this is a well-placed temptation, a well-placed doubt. Psalm 91 is hard for sometimes us to swallow in amount of difficulty. You read it and you say, how can that be true? How can no evil befall me? Christ is at this very moment in a battle with the devil, hungry and starving and having done so for 40 days in the wilderness, Hasn't evil befallen him even right now? Shouldn't the Lord's faithfulness and his word mean that Jesus, the righteous one, the Son of God, wouldn't have any evil befall him? Wouldn't have to undergo trial and certainly not the weight of hell? Shouldn't Psalm 91 say that? The devil's cunning. He knows God's word, doesn't he? But he uses it wrongly. He doesn't use it correctly. We know what Psalm 91 means. 
In fact, we'll return to it in just a second, but before going there, I think it's interesting to know that this mockery and this question was brought again to Jesus at the crucifixion when the people stood by watching him and scoffed at him and said he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, if he's the king of the Jews, save himself, save yourself. How could God's will and all the promises for his covenant people, all the promises of goodness mean that his most most beloved son would have to go through hell and die crucifixion death? Well, we know what Psalm 91 means. We know that ultimately it is true that the Lord protects his people and delivers them. And that death, though we face it, death itself doesn't undermine it. I once had a family select this psalm at a funeral. I think that's wonderful. Because there, just like in this case, you would think that psalm's ill-placed. It promises nothing but deliverance, but the, the evidence against that that the devil would say is lying in the coffin, in the casket, right next to you. And yet we know the truth, that even death won't thwart the plans of the Lord, that even death for his purposes are used for the good of his kingdom, used for our good. And so how does, how does the Lord respond? How does Jesus respond? He quotes again, he continues his quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And what he's quoting from is Deuteronomy 6.16, which continues, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. The whole situation at Massa was, remember, where there was no water. There was no water for the people to drink. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And then he said this, and this is very key, and why Jesus chooses this text. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? This is when the Lord had Moses strike the rock, which represented God himself. Moses strikes God, and the water of life froze from God's side. That's what happened in that account. And Moses called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. So at the place of testing and quarreling, the Lord was struck, and life water came from him, And Moses says, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, the test at Massa with the water was, is the Lord among us or not? And the Lord withheld water to see if the people would say, is he here? Does he provide? Is he among us? And what Jesus is doing is saying, in Psalm 91, the devil is making the same accusation, is the Lord with you or not? And his response is to point to the place where it was the testing, where the people tested the Lord and failed, and yet deliverance came from God's own hand, from his own struck side. And the provision of water, and so why do you test the Lord? You see... What Jesus does is he shows that the testing of the Lord is not one done in doubt. There are places in God's word where the Lord even tells his people, test me. But what he means there is, make a request of me. Let me show you my faithfulness. And in an avenue of faith and trust, a saint would do that thing at the Lord's behest when the Lord would actually say that. But what we're not to do is to test the Lord through a place of doubt. And that is what the devil is doing here. Doubt the Lord and force his hand. Force him to act on your behalf. Force him to prove himself. That's what the people wanted at Massa. 
And Jesus' response shows the truth. And I want to turn, as I had said, again, just to the end of Psalm 91. So was Psalm 91 ill-chosen by the devil? I would say, yes, it was. Why? This is talking about the righteous one who would be spared. And then in verses 12 and 13, he had quoted, and there, there, the angels, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But then verse 13 of Psalm 91 says this of the righteous one of the Lord. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Jesus is trampling the serpent underfoot. The devil's misuse of Psalm 91 doesn't even work. Jesus stands. In all of this, Jesus takes the echoes of these past defeats, and we see triumph. The whole struggle of Jesus against the devil is determined by the opposition between the kingdom of heaven and the rule of Satan. It's called Battle of the Titans. What we see here is that the devil is no match for Jesus, and so no match for us. That's our comfort. Not so we can stand and, 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 and egg the devil on and say, you're no match for me. That's not the point. The point is that in Christ, he's no match. And none of his people, none of his minions are. Jesus' unswerving devotion cracks the rule of Satan. And what comfort does this give us? Jesus' Unswerving devotion provides us the knowledge that the, that the sin's grip, the devil's grip on us is no more. It's shattered. We're no longer defined by echoes of the past failures. We're defined by our Savior's obedience. It gives us comfort in our own battle as we look to the kingdom of God that is growing and only growing and that Satan can't thwart or defeat and nor any of his powers. And even if in our own temptations he brings us up these texts and says, can you trust the Lord when you're going through this? And we can say, absolutely, we've already seen him defeat you. Ephesians 6 takes on a whole new meaning. Ephesians 6, 10 and following, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Can't read that text without understanding what Christ had done in his own temptations versus the devil. And so we move forward with kingdom work and the truth of a kingdom success in Christ and the spiritual strength that he provides in his protection. I love the Gospels. The Gospels afford us those glimpses of just Christ in fullness of glory. Yes, perhaps dimmed in his humanity, but it doesn't, doesn't take away from what he's doing. You can't read this text and not be, be proud and amazed at our Savior, our federal head, at our champion who defeats the devil, not just as God, but as man. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in awe of your plan. We are in awe of your power. For we see truly 
in this battle versus your son and Satan. This was not a boxing match that goes back and forth. And if we can can borrow from another game, a game of this world in chess, this was not a close match. This was a checkmate. There was no power that the devil could do for you were using and moving him along like a pawn. And we pray, though we do not in our abilities have the strength of Christ, we do have the strength of Christ in the spirit that indwells us. And though we know we will always fail and we will always fall to degrees, we also know a truth that is unshaking and unswerving. The kingdom of God moves forward and your people are part of that. And we put on the armor of God and against these the devil and his, his minions cannot triumph. And we wage war against these powers and against those who had far more power than us until it was that you came and equipped all with your spirit. We see the triumph of your kingdom, we see the triumph of the church, and in this we rejoice. In Jesus' great name.